Little Follies, Duclam's Bite, the preface concludes. Peter continues to provide examples of small adjustments that I had to make primarily for structural reasons. For another example, I included in that scene a boy named Raskolnikov, whom I have for years considered my best friend, though I knew him only for two days at about the time of the events in Duclam's Bite. One day, when I was visiting my big grandparents, I walked to the food market in the center of town to get a few things for grandmother so that she could make some of the coconut candies that I loved so much. On the way, I met a haunted-looking, hunted-looking boy carrying a sack. We struck up a conversation, and I learned that he was running away from home because his father and mother simply couldn't get along. His father was an impractical dreamer who had once wanted to build a lighthouse beside their tracked home, and his mother was a beleaguered drudge who did all the work around the house, struggled to make ends meet, and often screamed at his father, grow up. As I walked along beside the boy, the possibility occurred to me that he and I might become friends. For a wild moment, I thought of running away with him. Then I thought better of it and tried instead to persuade him to stay in Babington. I thought that if I took him home, my parents would give him some clean clothes and a warm meal and adopt him. He would have none of that. He'd already become a wanderer. He had to keep moving on. He asked me to steal him some fruit and a knife while I was in the market. I had some money of my own, so I bought him some peaches and a paring knife. And I got him a bag of hard candies, too, individually wrapped in cellophane so that they wouldn't stick together in the heat. I told him that I'd stolen these provisions and I think he was impressed. For the short time that he was in Babington, we were nearly inseparable, although, of course, I couldn't let my parents or grandparents know about him. I did introduce him to my great-grandmother, who lived in a room over Big Grandfather's garage, and it was she who nicknamed him Raskolnikov. He was so taken with her that he gave her the knife that I had stolen for him as a gift after she had given him $10 to help him along the road. Then he simply left. I've had many other friends, but each seems to offer only part of what this archetypal friend offered. Just as each of the girls and women I knew before I met Albertine could offer only part of everything I found in her. Another change from actual fact was prompted by good taste rather than by structure or logic or any of the other considerations that ordinarily influence a writer. I have made two of my ancestors, Black Jacques Leroy and his son, Fat Hank Leroy, rather tame. Two more or less harmless businessmen whose interests were limited to beer and poetry. I left a lot unsaid because I knew that if I had dragged in the tales of Black Jacques establishing Perrine's dockside bordello, his liaison with his son's wife, 
or his role in the Tong Wars between clamming factions, my family would have suffered considerable embarrassment. It was also a question of taste that made me have Fat Hank sell Leroy Lager, although in fact the brewery is still the cornerstone of the tiny Leroy fortune. The stuff has simply become so anemic that it embarrasses me to admit that I'm connected with it. At heart, though, Duclam's Bite is not about events or people. It is about fear. It's about several boyhood fears. The fear of saying the wrong thing, fear of sex, fear of oblivion, fear of becoming like one's parents, fear of other boys, especially those who carry knives, and most of all, the fear of having a hunk of oneself bitten off by a clam. As a boy, I suffered this fear in silence. Only later did I learn that I had not been the only sufferer. Although this fear was not widespread, many boys in Babington did suffer from it. That group of boys whose fathers or grandfathers were casual clam diggers who went right into the water after the clams, feeling for them with their feet, who wore brief woolen bathing suits, and who stored the clams they caught in the fronts of their suits. By buttonholing schoolchildren on their way home, I've learned that many still suffer from this fear. The clam in question, by the way, is Mercenaria mercenaria, the hard-shelled quahog, the pinnacle of Molluscan evolution, God's own clam. In other areas, I suppose oysters, mussels, or scallops occasion a similar dread. I don't know. Girls fear for their toes, but in boys, this palesopotophobia centers, as so many boyhood fears do, on the penis. At Clambakes, I have seen small boys furtively poking at the insides of clams before eating them to make sure that no part of an unfortunate lad is hidden there, just as I used to poke at clams when I was as young as they and is firmly in the grip of this terror. Once, not long ago, I found myself next to one of these boys at a table full of cherry stones. When I saw him poking at his clams, I leaned over and whispered to him, don't worry, they don't bite. I knew at once that he had understood the point of my remark, for he smiled and nodded his head and then laughed a mad, nervous laugh and began wolfing the clams down with horseradish and gusto. Peter Leroy, Smalls Island, July 11, 1982.